Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Right, let's make a start then. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're here with us, um, that you're in us, that you're within us, that we're within you and that um, we're in partnership with you, that we're in relationship with you, that we are connected um, thoroughly uh, to you and to each other in you. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your great love that has accomplished this. Uh, Thank you for the cross where we were reconciled to you through the blood of your Son. In Jesus' name, Amen. Right, so today uh, we're going to carry on this series on kind of spiritual warfare and, and God with us. And uh, my um, topic is prayer, practical prayer. Um, and I want to take an angle about prayer, and it's quite funny actually, because I think that kind of the way the worship went this morning, it was kind of quite preemptive or making me redundant, to be honest. Um, yeah, so I just want to talk about prayer in, in a very kind of personal way. Uh, so usually I think I tend to talk quite exegetically where I just take a text and mumble through it. But uh, today I just want to talk about some personal challenges that I've had uh, with prayer in, in general, I guess. Um, but first of all, I want to start out with a big statement that kind of you'll be thinking, why is he talking about that when he's supposed to be talking about prayer? Um, being reconciled with God is to be being reconciled with people. Reconciliation with God is synonymous with being reconciled to others. Oftentimes we have a, uh, a dualistic uh, way of being in the world, way of understanding our Christianity, whereby we have this kind of uh, God-orientated direction in our life, and we, we tend to talk, talk about that in vertical terms, and we have a horizontal direction in life, which, which is like our reconciliation with other people. And for good Christians... Um, or passionate Christians, or like really holy saint type people, the, the kind of reconciliation with God is very much uh, connected to the reconciliation with others. Um, but we're still satisfied with that sort of duality, that kind of, my relationship with God's one thing, and my relationship with others is something else. And this is something that we've inherited from uh, general enlightenment thinking. We're, we're happy with this duality. We have a split between the physical and the spiritual. We, we're okay with that. Um, and there's this great division. And I want to I say that to be reconciled with God is fundamentally synonymous with being reconciled with other people. And throughout this Bible, and I've only just started to discover this, there is this pattern that runs through the whole thing. That a reconciliation with God is immediately played out in reconciliation with other people. So if we go right back to the beginning of the Bible, and I will get to prayer, I promise. So you have, you have the fall, what we talk about the fall. And so it talks about pre the fall, Adam and Eve were in harmony together and with God. There's a real sense of a peace and orderliness to that relationship. So there's God, Adam and Eve. And then the fall happens. And then as soon as the fall happens, the relationship with God is broken. That's the fundamental aspect of the fall. But how do we understand this? It's that Adam turns around and accuses Eve and Eve accuses God. So, so before that, there was this harmony between God, Adam and Eve. Then straight away, the disharmony isn't one thing that happened and then another thing happened. It all happens simultaneously. As soon as there's a disconnect, it affects everything. 
There is in fact only one disconnect that happens, it's just that it pollutes all of the relationships. And then as soon as that happens, the effects are immediately felt. So you have Cain and Abel, these brothers. And because there's, a, there's an intrinsic disconnect with God, there is a rivalry that occurs between the brothers. So as soon as there's a disconnect with God, then it plays out in this violence, this rivalry. And we could go down some like Girardian thought there, but, um, but basically what happens is Cain kills Abel. We know this, right? And, and, and God comes to Cain and asks the question, where is your brother? He's, God is not cheesed off about murder happening. God is not perturbed about sin. God comes straight into the situation and confronts Cain. Where is your brother? Knowing full well that the text makes it very clear that God knows full well what's happened, but he's given Cain this opportunity. You know, uh, we talk uh, kind of the Danny Silk thing about cleaning up his mess. Where is your brother? But there's a disconnect at the heart of humanity. So Cain retorts, am I my brother's keeper? And a brilliant piece of writing is that that's the full stop. God doesn't respond. And it's this lingering question right at the beginning of the Bible. Am I my brother's keeper? And the thing is, the rest of the Bible sets out to answer that. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. I've been reading this beautiful book by a guy called Robert Alter, who's kind of pioneered this narrative reading of the Bible. So reading the Bible like you'd read Shakespeare and looking at all the art of the the words and how the sentences and the stories are constructed And so we get to the story of Joseph, which is kind of an archetypal narrative in the Bible. It occupies a third of Genesis. Joseph and his brothers. And it's this whole play on how the brothers all vie with each other and there's this really weird relationship with the father who favours the brothers, that favours one of the brothers. And they have this rivalry and and all the language points to, like, they treat Joseph as good as dead. And there's, like, this beautiful stuff about, like, going down to Egypt, which, which rings with going down to Sheol, you know, like, so even though Joseph is in Egypt, he might as well be as good as dead, that's what's coming through the story, and then the story kind of resolves with the brothers all kind of being confronted with their crime, and then one by one, kind of the instigators of the crime, so Reuben and Judah, they kind of, they kind of confront with, like, we've killed our brother, we actually feel guilt for this thing that we did all these years ago. And it's, it's just stunning how the story plays out. And then it all gets brought back together again. All these brothers are repatriated to each other. And the, the ones that needed to confronted, were confronted with the guilt and they dealt with that in like various ways. So um, the, just the language around like Jacob and, and offering themselves instead of Judah, instead of, um, instead of Joseph and instead of Benjamin, you know, like he want, uh, Joseph wants to keep Benjamin, but then Judah offers himself instead and... Um, Reuben offers his two sons to Jacob if they don't come back with, with, with Benjamin and all this beautiful stuff but the answer to the question am I my brother's keeper in that story is yes you are responsible for each other and this is baked into the nation of Israel so when you think about Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Numbers one of the constant themes is, is that we'll organise ourselves this way this is how society is going to be um, but make sure that you look after the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. Do all of these things, but make sure you don't forget that. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, you are. 
the whole way that the society is organised is that, that no one is economically, geographically or biologically disenfranchised from the nation. You cannot be a lower caste, you cannot be a lower class, because every seven years there's this jubilee that r returns the economy to, to a, a level playing field. Even though, like, Israel as a nation is this really kind of nationalistic sort of thing, like, you are set apart from all others, yet within their constitution, if you will, they're told you have to welcome the stranger. You have to make sure that they're okay. And one of the massive themes throughout sort of the book of Judges and Kings and that is how people don't look after the stranger and how bad things follow from that. Because the disconnect with God is played out with, in the disconnect from other people. And the disconnect from other people disconnects them from God. The two are synonymous. The prophets. We get to the prophets and they rail against Israel. Israel, why have you failed? Why are you being conquered by all these other nations? It's because you have failed at these things. And it doesn't say, you've failed to offer uh, the red heifer. It doesn't say you haven't offered the correct sacrifices. It says you have failed to look after each other. Isaiah is just full of it. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, all of the minor prophets all rail against Israel. Not because they do not worship God rightly in their sacrifices. But it's because they don't treat each other rightly. God is not bothered by whether they say the right things to him or come in the right way. He's bothered about how they treat each other. And this is what God challenges the nation of Israel with through the prophets. So am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Categorically, yes. And then Jesus demonstrates this. So if you notice how Jesus operates, anybody that's pushed out in any sort of way, it's almost like Jesus makes a beeline for them. Have you got leprosy and you're ceremonially unclean? Should be an advert. Then Jesus is your man. Have you got an issue of blood so you cannot be around the small community that you're in? Yeah, well, you know what? We're going to make you clean, not privately, because, you know, that would be kind of tactful, wouldn't it? You know, he does it publicly in front of everybody and draws attention to it because he's saying, look, I've healed you of the thing, but the bigger issue is is that you are now part of this community again. You are now part of society. If you're a woman, a child, a foreigner, Jesus makes a beeline for you. If you were a collaborator with the enemy, a tax collector, a traitor, a betrayer, Jesus is your man. And he welcomes them all. And the most significant act is that he just hangs on a cross in front of everybody, whips bloody broken naked, ashamed by everybody. Everybody has conspired against him. Even his disciples have conspired against him. They've left him. They've abandoned him. And he still says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Am I my brother's keeper? Jesus says, yes, absolutely, 100% you are. Jesus, when he talks, he talks about the worship. So we talk about this vertical sort of relationship with God. It hangs on being reconciled with people first. If you have an issue with your brother, put down your sacrifice, go be reconciled, and then come and offer your sacrifice, offer your worship. Why? It's God like, you can't come into my presence like that, fella. No, because a fundamental part of related to God is how we relate to each other. When Peter, at the lake in Galilee, Jesus says to him, do you love me? Peter says, of course, you know I love you, Jesus. Oh, then worship me better. No. Then lead my church? Not quite. 
feed my sheep, care for people. If you love me, you will care for people. And then all three members of the Trinity have to shush Peter when he doesn't quite get it. Oh, but they're unclean. No, let's start again. Don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. Go and reach these people. How you relate to one another is how you relate to me. So reconciliation with God is to be reconciled with each other. Connection, relationship, embodied spirituality and incarnate practice. And so kind of rolling back a few weeks when I talked about the abstract and the concrete, one thing I I just want to emphasise is that I'm not talking about a materialism. I'm not talking about our spirituality is kind of, it means nothing unless we're doing physical action, as if, uh, like, basically a social gospel. That is part of it, 100%. But um, I think uh, Pete uh, kind of drew on the Beck book about, actually, if you kind of follow that way, you're going to burn out very quickly. Because there's no way you have a capacity to solve all of the ills of the world on your own. But there's a spiritual connection with God. So when we, when we sing our songs when we dare to dream what can be accomplished it's not like got an idea now let's go do this thing it's like God's going to do something and we may or may not be the ones to accomplish that but if I'm not the one to do it I want to cheer on the people who are you know I want to back them so just to make sure that it's not it's not an either or we have this spirituality and then we have this social work I want to get rid of that kind of duality in our thinking, absolutely. There is no duality, it's both. It's not either or. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to be the prayer warrior locked in a, in a closet. Okay, well, I'll go be the one that, that joins the Salvation Army then. I'll go do something like that. No, it's both. So today I'm going to talk about prayer. After saying all that, so I want you to get the idea that this relationship is synonymous with this relationship. There is, I shouldn't even be talking in the two, but I'm quite, not quite there with the language how that works yet. So there's this uh, famous Jewish sage called the Baal Shem Tov, um, Lord of the Good Name is, is his name. And he tells this story whereby two, two people are walking through a wood. One of them is absolutely drunk and hammered. And they're walking through the wood and then they get brutally robbed and mugged. And they get out the other side and they go to the nearest village and, and the villagers say, what happened? And the drunk man says, nothing happened, we're perfectly fine. And the other man says, don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We were, we were brutally robbed. And the Baal Shem Tov goes on to say, sometimes our belief in God works like being a drunk. That it enables us to deny the actual reality and insulate us from the real things. He says, but no, we were robbed... And brutally mugged, and then the villagers help them, basically. And it's a bit of a quirky story, but uh, Jewish sages are a bit like that. But the point is, is that sometimes prayer can act like an insulator instead of a connector. And I am 100% kind of addressing the challenges that I have faced. So this may just bypass you completely. Um, so sometimes I find prayer to be that way. Uh, something that I can hide behind. Um, you know, it's not, it's not purposed that way. It's not deliberate. I'm not kind of thinking, oh, if I do this, then I won't have to do that. Like, it's an honest thing. But nonetheless, like, prayer creates a distance for me from a situation um, and absolves me from actually doing anything. 
And I'm not talking about, you know, like when there's a, 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 na a national disaster or some um, a natural disaster, sorry, when there's something like that and you're just like, well, what can I do? You know, I have a job, we have, you know, we've got our families, we're fully bedded in Coventry, there's no way we can run off to Indonesia and help people. So sometimes, I had an argument with somebody on Facebook a couple of years back about this kind of thoughts and prayers thing, because I was saying, what's that, that Ricky Gervais quote, uh, they had the, 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 um, the flood in New Orleans, and he posted a quote, um, oh, I feel so stupid now, people have sent thoughts and prayers, I only sent money. And the thing is, is that he's kind of needling that kind of, like, it's platitude, it's virtual signal, uh, virtue signaling, isn't it? Um, but that's not what I'm talking about. And, and I'm not knocking prayer, by the way. Um, I'm fully, f I fully subscribe to the, the efficacy of prayer. In terms of, I have, uh, I've had the privilege of working with persecuted Christians. And you'd think that in that situation, there's practical things that they'd want, that they desire. Oh, we need, we need this because we've been pushed out of villages. But, no, the one thing... Across the world, you know, they've not conspired to say these nice things to, to open doors or whatever. But the one thing they all say is that pray for us because it makes a difference knowing that people are thinking about us. So prayer is effective even in the completely disconnected sort of way that it happens. But what I want to talk about is how sometimes when I pray, sometimes it's the, the prayer, it doesn't sound like this, but this is the heart of it. God, get your hands dirty so that I don't have to. So say, for example, um, if it's an internal prayer of uh, God, change me. Make me a more patient person. Which is a great prayer and I pray that often. <laughs> but it's like if I just prayed that prayer and then I ignore the situations or people actually coming to me and trying to say, you know, you're a bit grumpy, mate. You need to just wind that back a bit. But I'm saying, oh no, I'm praying. God, make me a patient person. Just go away. The, the prayer is inoculated me to that critique. Or, um, I'm going to pray for the sick. It's a really admirable thing to do, right? It takes a lot of bottle to lay your hand on the sick. But, Maybe, what about walking alongside the sick person through their illness, through the mess and dirt, and challenge of being with somebody that is very sick? Because that's a constant needle in our faith. Why hasn't this happened? I prayed for them. I prayed for them again. I prayed for them. The long walk of walking with someone who has a long-term illness is a very difficult thing, but sometimes it can be... I'll I'll pray for them, genuinely. God, heal them. And then that's it. My duty there is done. And again, this might seem like ridiculously self-critical. But the thing is, this is the crux of the feeling. I'm, this is the crux of the thing that I'm feeling right now. So uh, we had this planning meeting, I don't know how many weeks ago. About three or four weeks ago, it's probably about four weeks. Right, so it was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll talk on prayer for sure. And then God has this horrible and really annoying habit of saying, oh, you think you're going to preach on that? Well, you might need a refresher course on that. So yeah, a whole bunch of stuff is kind of bundled into my life uh, recently. So I want to talk about God's Coffee Shop and New Amsterdam. How many people watch New Amsterdam? 
No, okay, well, just to give you a background before I get into that, New Amsterdam is a show about a, a public hospital in New York. It's called New Amsterdam. And it's, it's one of the free hospitals, so anybody can go there and get treatment. And uh, rather than needing kind of lucrative health insurance before anybody would touch them. So obviously it's quite a dramatic setting for a show in New York. So there's all sorts of sick people that come to this place. And it's just been taken over. The main character is this guy called Max Goldwyn. Goodwin. I do watch it, honestly. Um, and he's kind of this real maverick-type character. He's going he's gonna to change the world. And so he takes over the directorship of this hospital, but he's a micromanager of a, a doctor, to be honest. But he has this thing of, of, like, his first question is, how can I help? But it's not a platitude. He genuinely means it, because he firmly believes that the, the institution of the health service should be there to help people. And so he's going to bend this institution to help people. And we know kind of in this country the issue of, of you know, what happens if the NHS gets privatised? People are going to miss out because the institution is like this monolith that will, will actually insulate people from the care that they need rather than actually enabling people. So he's battling this institution. He comes up with all sorts of cunning ways of how to get this help. But slowly, like, his leadership team of doctors all get on board with this and the line starts to blur between, uh, they call it professional distance, and how they care for people. But I won't give any more away particularly. But it's just this amazing, um, it's just this amazing thing of how he subverts this, this, this monolithic institution into ben to actually connecting with people. And so, you know, if you've watched any doctor shows, usually the medical director of a hospital is quite aloof and removed uh, but he seems to be in every scene of the show um, and there's all sorts of other things but it's funny because that, that's exactly how it is he represents the institution but he's always there hands on and I, and I think that's a, a wonderful way of doing it because it could be an insulator the institution could insulate him from actually caring because the institution is there to care um, so going back to God's Coffee Shop then, most of you will be aware because I, kind of, I, I try to send updates to us as a community because this is kind of a cause that we've adopted, um, God's Coffee Shop. Most of you will be aware about a guy called Matt. Um, Matt is a homeless guy. He's an addict. He's a criminal. Um, he has huge issues with heroin and alcohol. Uh, he has a dog called Rascal. Um, he is a stubborn man, he's a very proud man, uh, and he is thoroughly and utterly broken. Um, he's an absolute mess. Uh, he has a good heart. He wants to get clean. Um, I've never experienced addiction to heroin uh, at all, <laughs> but I do know that it's, it's a massive addiction to kit. That's like the one that, that is almost impossible to get over. Um, Everything about him is a mess. He has faced severe childhood trauma. He's a father that cannot see his own children. He is like a microcosm of all the pain that humanity could possibly feel, I think. Um, and Cheryl and Todd, so they're the guys that run God's Coffee Shop, so it's really been Cheryl's heart for this coffee shop. Um, and, and she's just been amazing. Um, She's like a mother hen, if you've ever met her. Uh, she's a terrible, terrible organiser of anything. Um, but she has this amazing heart for people. And her vision for the coffee shop was never to serve food. It was always to create a community. 
and the food was just like a thing. It was like the food was the gimmick to get the people there almost. And then, like, working with Matt has almost broken her. I've had her on the phone in absolute tears, threatening to chuck everything in. She can't cope anymore. The, the, there's all sorts of issues uh, w with, with Matt. So he's got a dog, so he can't get all of the free accommodation that he'd normally be allowed to have without putting his dog in a kennel. But he's incredibly stubborn, and the dog is his one companion. So he refuses to leave his dog in a kennel. So Cheryl and Todd have both taken it in turns in babysitting this dog so that he can go to the hospital, so that he can be in Saliami, so that he can go to um, the Orsley Hotel. All of these things. Um, he's been in hospital because he's got a, a blood clot that's moving around his body. Uh, they've tried to give him um, the thing that weans you off heroin. He keeps forgetting he can't get to the hospital. Um, and then Cheryl and Todd have kind of just loved on him. Ridiculous, uh, extravagant, um, inconvenient, painful love for this man who is an absolute mess. And one day he'll be absolutely furious and livid and really difficult to manage. And then another day he'll be weeping and crying and saying how grateful he is for their in intervention. And he is determined to get clean, but then the next day he gets kicked out of the Salvation Army hostel because he's got a packet of needles and you can't have drugs paraphernalia and stay in the accommodation. And Cheryl and Todd have been walking with this day in, day out. Cheryl has said to me, I'm not going to give you his phone number because he will pester you like no one's business and you have a family. And so all I've been left with is prayer. But I've been given this image of what it looks like to really love Matt. The other week, I, um, I volunteered to do anything that I can to help on a Monday. And so they were just like, well, we know that Matt is outside Weatherspoon's pub. Uh, in town, can you take him some food? And so I'd seen him the week before at Sky's Coffee Shop. He had this massive beard, he still had a hospital gown on. And I went to look for him with food. And honestly, I walked straight past him because I didn't recognise him at all within a week of him being on the street. He had the only way I, I recognised him was because of his dog. He was in that much of a mess, and all I could do was just give him this food and offer him a prayer and go. That's all, that's all I could do, because you know, like, I, I need to get home, I've got things going on. And I'm not heaping condemnation upon myself. Am I doing enough? Um, I, I don't really have that kind of issue. You know, I'm okay with what I could do. But the thing is, is before me, living it out, is this Cheryl, you know, she's such a passionate person about prayer, like this is the big thing. And then she's like, well, I can't not. I absolutely 100% cannot not get involved in this man's life. This is all I want to do. This is like my full reason for being, is, is being involved with this guy right now, walking through this. And so I find that my prayer, in some ways, has is, is been an insulator for me. Because part of me is like, I know if I allow this, this is going to get inside me and then I'm going to either have to do that or like I can't cope with anything you know and so like I've had to insulate myself and that's okay I'm not advocating that we should burn ourselves out for every difficult case we encounter because especially for you guys who are teachers working in schools 
you're, you're going to encounter, I don't know, for every class, probably like 20 or 30 issues that you could just spend your entire energy and life trying to fix. But there's this thing about like our spirituality being ultimately connected. You know when um, it talks about Jesus being moved with compassion? Like, I don't know how you guys understand that, but when, when I think about compassion, it's like, oh, I felt something. You know, I felt warm or fuzzy, or not in a, a derogatory way, but, you know, like, I felt this thing. But when, when, when it talks in the New Testament, and, like, even ancient writers, they, they've got this physiological understanding of, 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 of language. So the word for compassion is this brilliant word, splagnon. And it literally means your guts or your kidneys. So when Jesus is moved with compassion, but which he is moved with a lot, it's not... I feel like the good thing to do here is feed you guys. It's like my guts are churning inside. And if I don't do something, I'm not going to make it through. Because I'm so viscerally connected to these other humans around me. It's just that I feel their pain. You know, when Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep or hurt with those who hurt. You know, he talks in Corinthians about when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And, and, and we take that at a distance. We take that at a distance. When one part of the body suffers, so, um, you know, when one of us is ill or going through it, sometimes it's like, oh man, you know, how can we help? Can we? But it's very rare, if I'm speaking for myself, that I'm like, man, that is such an awful situation. I can't, I can't sleep at night because this person's going through this thing. Like, it wrenches my stomach so hard because I feel that person's pain. I'm not an empath. I'm, I'm probably more of a sociopath, to be honest. Um, so I, I don't get that visceral thing, but it's just like, when Paul talks, when Jesus talks about this thing, it's because, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. His pain is your pain. Her pain is your pain. But... They're rejoicing. Is your rejoicing? I think the closest we get to this idea is, you know, when uh, uh, somebody has a child or somebody gets married. You know, there's that, there's that kind of real like, wow, this is amazing. I'm so, I'm so made up for you guys. This is just stunning. Like, I'm always going to run out of words because I'm so happy for what's going on. We can kind of connect on that level. But there's this deep thing where the Bible is continuously striving through prayer, through worship, through social outreach, through everything that orientates us as Christians in this world, that is, am I my brother's keeper? And there is no hesitation in saying, yes, absolutely, 100%. So I'm going to come to the Bible now. That's a bit of a novelty, isn't it? Um, so I want to look briefly at one of my favourite stories in the Bible, the Good Samaritan, which I talk about all the time. And I want to tell you another uh, Jewish kind of legend about a rabbi called Hillel. And there's kind of a parallel between this. So in, in the Babylonian Tal- Talmud, it says this little story. Um, Hillel was a rabbi a generation before Jesus. And you'll actually find that a lot of what Jesus says is echoes of what Hillel has said. So basically, in, in the Gospels, a lot of the discussion he has with the, the teachers of the law is that they're asking him to weigh in on these kind of long-standing questions within the rabbinic school. So when we think that Jesus has a real beef with the Pharisees, actually he's so like the Pharisees that he's in their conversations about what he thinks about stuff. So actually, we, we read it from a distance and without kind of understanding the context, but there's a lot of this kind of mutual... 
discussion going on and that's where all the kind of vehemence comes from because they're actually so close and yet it feels like knocking their heads against the wall so Jesus tends to side with Hillel on his kind of judgments of things how, how do you think what do you think about this thing Jesus and Jesus often kind of repeats or kind of tweaks some stuff that Hillel said um, and at Hillel's time there was another rabbi called Shammai so Hillel was kind of the more um, I don't know you kind of have to say liberal but that's not how he is he's kind of more the Jesus orientated kind of guy he's a little bit more free of religiosity but Shammai is like this real hardcore conservative and it's kind of like these two schools of thought butting their heads and the Pharisees kind of adopt a Shammai kind of reading of things and Jesus kind of adopts a Halal reading of things so the story goes in the Babylonian Talmud there was another incident involving one Gentile who came before Shammai and said to Rabbi Shammai convert me on the condition that you teach me the entire Torah while standing on one foot. Shammai pushed him away with the builder's cubit in his hand, so a ruler basically. Um, this was a common measuring stick and Shammai was a builder by trade. The same Gentile came before Rabbi Hillel. He converted him and said to him, that which is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the t- entire Torah and the rest is interpretation. Go learn. So we'll recognise that as a negative inversion of the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do as yourself. So Jesus takes what Hillel said and, and, and flips it to the positive. But the point is this, is, is, is that he ends it by saying, uh, that which is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the entire Torah. The rest is interpretation. Go learn. So it's a bit ambiguous. Is he saying go learn the Torah? Or is it go learn how to not do what is hateful to you. What is the spiritual teaching of the Torah? This is it. Now go do it. Because that's the only way you will ever understand it. This kind of spiritual, esoteric, abstract thinking, the only way that that works or has any meaning is if you go and learn it by doing. Learn by doing. So then, the Good Samaritan just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, well, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbour as yourself. So I'm kind of using neighbour, brother, as a cipher for each other. And he said to him, Jesus said to the lawyer, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. So notice right away that Jesus is cutting through all of the exposition, hermeneutics, theology. Go do this. Go do this thing and you will live. It's not like Jesus is saying, if you don't do this, you are immediately going to die. But we read it this way, don't we? We kind of, how is Jesus connected, loving God, loving neighbour, with living? Unless something fundamental to how we live, fundamental to life itself, is to do with love. <coughs> but wanting to justify himself, I love how like the writers in the Bible just have these sort of nudges and winks at you, like, this guy's totally not got it, he's the bad guy in the scene, let's not be like... You know, if it was a film, he'd, he'd, this would happen at night and he'd have a hood on and he'd look a bit evil, right? 
he'd be played by an English guy in an American film or a German. Yeah, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, oh, your neighbour's that guy over there. No, Jesus, in very Jewish tradition, tells a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell in the hands of the robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Uh, Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite... Uh, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while travelling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. So there's that kind of splagnon, gut twisting. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. He put, them on his, he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn. He took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go do likewise. So I've probably done the cultural bit of this. There's two things I really want to draw out on this. Is that the priest is the highest caste in the temple system. And the Levite's kind of like the the, uh, assistance to the priests. And and like uh, a brilliant storyteller, what Jesus does is there's a traditional format for how this story should go. And and then the punchline is like we work from the holiest people, the next holiest people. And so the punchline of the joke is the common man. That's who the hero of the story is, the common Jew. Uh, But Jesus completely subverts the trope of the literature. And he throws in their teeth um, the Samaritan. We've gone over this. I think I've likened the Samaritans to Donald Trump or ISIS before. So it's just this really um, odious person. To all of his audience, he chose the most kind of provocative person he could have thought of. But the thing is this. We we tend to work in in a polarised way, this dualism again. So we think priests and Levites, we don't really know the difference between the two. They're just these religious people and they're all under law and yada yada. And we, they're the bad guys. So we read this as if Jesus is saying, these are bad guys, this guy's the good guy. But actually, the, the dynamic isn't... They're not trying to say who, who is a bad guy. The question is, is about loving God and loving neighbour. That's the framework for the conversation. So there is no bad guys. It's just who is doing the right thing. Because the priest and the Levite, they work in the temple on behalf of the nation of Israel, loving God. They have a professional... What we do, what our job is, is love God. And this is all encompassing. Our whole life is revolving around loving God. We do it professionally. I can't go near dead bodies. I can't go near issues of blood. Because if I do that, I can't love God properly. That's the priest's position. He's not like, I don't care. It's just a body on the road. He's like, he, he has got to a quandary. What am I to do? I could help this guy. You know, we, we have like a, a real kind of anti-Semitic view of Jews mentioned in the New Testament. But it's like, he's a human. Part of the Torah is to care for people. We've already done this. But it's like, but my prime thing is to love God. So what am I to do? There's a dead body. If I go near this person, I won't be able to do my job. And it's my turn in the temple this month. So if I do this, I'm going to be off work for seven days. I'm going to have to go and do some bathing in the, the right pool. 
And then I've let the whole team down. I've let the nation of Israel down at this critical time because we're being subjected to the Romans. I need to do my job. I need to love God professionally. And so hopefully you're getting echoes of an institution that's insulated this guy from doing the loving neighbour bit. And then the Levite has the same issue. My boss has just walked by this guy. I can't go show up my boss and I can't be unclean because I've got to help my boss you know, tomorrow when we go back to the temple. And so he chooses somebody that has none of these issues. The Samaritan doesn't have cleanliness issues with the temple because he worships somewhere else, doing something else in a different way. So the Samaritan is able to love the guy. Sometimes our religion, our uh, spiritual outworking, our loving God, this relationship insulates us from this relationship. Like a, a, a version of this would be, a cyclist has been knocked off his bike on a Sunday morning at about quarter past ten. I'm leading worship this morning so I can't stop and help. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. He didn't say, go think about this. Just go do. That's enough. Go do. Go be this thing. Go do. Because am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely yes. Because being reconciled with God is synonymous with being reconciled with each other. The fact that the Samaritan doesn't worship in the right temple is not an issue for Jesus. Because the issue about loving God is to do with loving neighbour. 100%. So Heavenly Father, I pray uh, that you help us. Um, Sometimes it's hard to be honest with ourselves about how we live and move and have our being in you. And sometimes, God, it's just a question of where we are at with things or what actually just comes crashing into our life that we have to deal with. But Father, I pray that that you would disrupt us with your Holy Spirit, that we would not settle um, for easy answers. But Father, we would just look for better questions to ask. The Father, when we're faced with challenges, that we would uh, meet them head on, that we'd have the courage and resolve um, and the heart to do this. Father, with, with the VIP event coming so soon, I pray that we would have a fully orbed, fully uh, embodied, fully incarnate spirituality about that, that um, all of our worship plays out in how we treat other people, but how we treat other people plays into how we worship. So thank you, Father, for your presence with us and your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you bless us this week, that we could be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.